Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 4, 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It deserves to have you, and you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Everywhere you look, people seem to be fighting. This past week, I've been paying attention to the news in Bolivia, the country where my brother and his family live, as there's been significant civil unrest there following a disputed election. Protesters in the streets and then police attacking with tear gas. It's been a lot of violence, and it's just an example of one part of, one part of our world where conflict is brewing. If we come a little further north than South America, but still south of our border, uh, the U.S. this last week, political battles, the Democrats and Republicans locked in a vote about impeachment. And even in a world that is not real conflict, even when we turn on the television and we sit down to watch a show and imagine life with some other family, they're fighting, they're conflict with one another. We just can't seem to get around it. And so I thought it would be a good idea for us to spend some time this month taking a look at what we're going to call some old-school Bible fights. Because the good book of ours paints a far-from-harmonious picture of what it means to live by faith. I mean, all through its pages. You can think of a story like King Saul chasing down David and trying to pin him against the wall with a spear. Or you could think about Jonah going on a voyage on a ship and being tossed overboard by his shipmates. Think about Paul and Barnabas having this disagreement about whether Mark should come with them on their journey and them actually parting ways and splitting from one another for a season of their lives. I mean, conflict is just everywhere in the pages of the Bible. Right from the outset, people were getting into it with each other, showing that conflict is an inescapable companion on the road of life. So this month we'll be looking at some biblical relationships where conflict arose in hopes that we can learn how to handle our own circumstances better. Peter Steinke wrote a book that was really valuable to me navigating a season of conflict. He writes, the Christian story is underlined 
with conflict. There's an admission for you. But it's not only the Christian story, it's the human story. I try to remind my kids about this, and not just my kids, but other people too. Because sometimes when conflict happens in the church, or conflict happens with other followers of Jesus, it can be easy to, to think that that's why the conflict is there. But I always try to remind them and say, no, it's not because it's the church, it's because we're human. It's not because they're a Christian that there's conflict, it's because we're human. Because conflict is just part of our humanity. As soon as humanity's story begins, the fight is on. By the end of Genesis chapter 3, I mean, the first couple chapters are pretty harmonious. They're going well. God's creating the universe. He's creating everything that's known. Everyone's, this is good, that's good, this is good, that's good. Everyone's getting along. But by the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve have been banished from the Garden of Eden after tasting the forbidden fruit, and they're forced to work the ground in order to make a living. Now, you might be tempted to dismiss this origin story because of its talking serpents and flaming swords, but if you get hung up on the details, you'll miss the point. Isn't there something about life that devolves even as it evolves, that part of our growth and maturity as people includes stumbling and falling along the way? Despite the apparent devastating consequences, the narrative of Genesis suddenly turns. Now, we don't notice it, because along the way, someone decided to number the chapters of the Bible. They're not there in the original manuscripts. It would just be one continuous scroll. But someone decided, well, you know, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, that's a good place to end chapter 3, so we'll end it, and then we'll start chapter 4. And by doing that, we kind of miss something that's a little humorous. Uh, so basically, the very end of chapter 3, we've got them getting kicked out of the garden for being disobedient, and the beginning of chapter 4 starts this way. Adam made love to his wife Eve. So if you take the chapter heading away, it just like flows in from like getting kicked out, and then it's like there's this in-between conversation that we just have to imagine in our mind, something like, well, we sure botched that one. Want to make out? Like, I mean, I don't know, like something happens in the middle there where we go from being expelled from the dark garden to making love. Now, depending on how comfortable you are hearing about sex in church, perhaps you would have preferred that I stuck with the classic King James version, Adam knew Eve, right? So then we don't have to say it. We can just say Adam knew Eve and be like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. No. But then again, we are all here, every last one of us, because at some point an untold number of years ago, a certain man and a certain woman figured some things out, and they got this whole human race thing going, rolling down the tracks of history. Well, thanks, Captain Obvious, for explaining where babies come from. But I don't say this to explain where babies come from, but to explain where we come from, as in all of us. This is our origin story. If we read this story as of being about somebody else, some other people, then we miss one of Genesis' greatest gifts, a reminder that we will all form from the same clay. The name Adam is actually a Hebrew word, Adam, which basically means man, or more broadly, humankind. And so we're reading a story about Adam, but we're also really reading a story about humankind. That's important for us to understand. We'll come back to the importance of our common origin a little later. But for now, let's recognize that the story is about Adam and Eve is also a story about us. It's a story about Adam and Eve, but as every new parent knows, the story very quickly becomes about the children, right? Like as soon as, as, soon as that baby is born, it is no longer a story about you. It is a story about this little one, and all of a sudden another one appears just like that. So Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. 
If we're all formed from the same clay, we're all formed differently. I was reading this, and for some reason my mind went back to that classic late 80s movie, Twins, with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, where it's discovered that they were part of some genetic experiment um, where they were trying to create like a superhuman, and somehow the embryo like split, and they ended up getting like two people, one who's basically superhuman, and the other is like the leftovers. Anyways, cheesy movie. Um, if, uh, if you're fans of Jason Momoa, apparently he is interested in making a remake with uh, Peter Dinklage from his uh, Game of Thrones cohort, so we might have a remake of Twins. Anyways, all of this to say uh, that even, if, uh, even as, as much as we come from that same clay, we are different. And if you think about any kind of family, whether it's your own or a family that you know, or e even siblings who are part of that same family are so different. People can have interests like this and someone else has interests that are very different and they can all be part of that same family. And this is what happens here, right? We've got Abel is keeping flocks, Cain is working the soil, they're siblings, they're part of that family, but they're just very different people. Now, let's go back to this narrative. Just take a look at verse 3 and 4 for a moment here. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, if you were around for our last fall's series on Leviticus, you might recall that both grain and animal offerings had their rightful place in Hebrew worship. Now, this is we're talking a long time in the future, but there, it's, the reason it's important for us to remember that is that clearly God is okay with receiving offerings from the field and from the flocks. That's something that we'll learn later on. But of course, we're nowhere near that point in history. And so the question is, how would Cain and Abel have known what to bring God? They want to do something as an offering to God. What do you bring? How are they supposed to know what God would accept? Uh, Melissa was telling me a story this week about a coworker of hers who was telling a story that they have a cat, and one morning their cat brought a dead mouse and hopped up onto their bed and dropped the dead mouse on them like as an offering. Like, hey, I thought you'd like this. And of course they lose their minds and freak out over this disgusting creature lying on their bed, right? But how was the cat supposed to know? I don't know. What are these people like? Maybe a dead mouse. Let's see. No, okay, guess not. Won't do that again. So Cain and Abel bring their offering, right? They're like, I don't know, so something from my flock, something from the grains. Who knows? Genesis 4, 5, 4 and 5 continues, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so all of a sudden, this kind of family dynamic starts taking a turn, right? If uh, we were to look at a picture, it's like this is the family picture. It's God is the father there. we got Abel up there, and then Cain... He's down at the bottom there. He's, that's how he feels. He's like, what's going on? I'm doing my best here. Like, how was I supposed to know you wouldn't like a dead mouse? Like, how, he doesn't know. But he very quickly figured out he was not God's favorite. That's at least what he interpreted. Now, what does this mean? Why did God accept one and not the other? What was the differences between these offerings? Well, it's not really easy to figure out. And the proof that it's not figure it, easy to figure it out is that a long time after the story of Genesis was ever written down, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament of the Bible points to this story, and this is the conclusion they draw. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Like, that's it. There's no reason. There's no rationale. There's no explanation. It's just somehow Abel's offering was better than Cain's. So one poor interpretation of the story would be this. It would be to assume that like Abel, we know what God wants and that other people should act the same way as us. 
See, Abel could have looked at the story, and, and he could have been like, see, I know what God wants. I know how to offer him. And we do this sometimes. We might look at someone who's part of a different church and, and look down on them or say, well, they, they're not really worshiping God the way that, that God wants. Or maybe we look at someone who has different priorities in their life and say, well, it doesn't appear like they're kind of honoring God with their life. Or we might look at someone who has different expressions of what it means to be faithful, and we could say, well, well they don't understand. I mean, clearly, like, I know what this is, uh, this is all about. Instead, can we appreciate the differences in people and what they bring to God? Can we learn to appreciate the differences in our offerings? I read this great line from the moral philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch this week. She writes uh, about this word that she kind of came up with called unselfing. And she defines it this way, to recognize that there are infinitely many kinds of beautiful lives. I think that's great. And that applies not just to others, not just to our being able to accept that people can live beautiful lives that are different than us. People can bring different kinds of offering to God than we might choose to bring. But it applies to ourselves as well. Because another unfortunate interpretation would be to think that, like Cain, God, surely God doesn't want what we have to offer. We sing a song earlier today, like, God is this good Father, and we're loved by Him. That's difficult for some people to accept, because maybe you've heard a message over the course of your life that what you have to offer God isn't enough, and we have to make sure that we don't interpret the story that way. If the Genesis account doesn't provide any rationale for the acceptance of one offering over the other, is it possible that this wasn't the point of the story? Maybe the fact that it's not spelled out means that this isn't what we're supposed to get out of this. We had a clue a couple of verses later, as God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So clearly he had done something wrong that he, his offering was not accepted. Maybe the story has less to do with what Cain offered the Lord and more to do with what was going inside the heart of humankind's firstborn child. As we continue in the story, verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Rejection can bring out the worst in us, can't it? The romantic relationship that doesn't go anywhere, the interview that doesn't land us the job, the unexpected reaction that catches us off guard. When we feel rejected, we respond often in negative ways. Our responses vary. It may be discouragement. It may be jealousy. It may be disappointment. It may be anger. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? But I don't think that this is about God being in the dark and him like not really understanding what's going on in Cain's heart. I think this is about him inviting relationship. I think, this, I think God knows exactly why Cain is angry and exactly why his face is downcast, but he's inviting him. Talk to me about it. Let me in, Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And what a gift, open and honest advice straight from the mouth of God. This is all you got to do. There's this danger coming your way. This is your key to get out of it. But then who wants to hear advice when emotions are running high? Quick show of hands, anyone? <laughs> yeah, right. You're feeling angry, you're feeling disappointed, you're upset, you're sad, and someone comes up to you and gives you some advice on how to get through it. You're just like, shut up, right? Like, I don't want to hear it right now. I don't want to hear it. When we're at our best, 
We understand how important it is to stay in relationship with people, even when there's conflict. When we're at our best, we understand how important it is to heed wise counsel, especially when our emotions are threatening to take over, when we're at our best. But when we're not at our best, we distance ourselves from people when there's conflict. When we're not at our best, we don't want to listen to that advice. We just continue on our own thoughts and our own opinions. Bruce McEwen writes that stress limits our repertoire of responses. Fixated on what is endangering us, we forfeit our imaginative capacities. That's a brilliant observation, right? Like when the stress is high, when the emotions are high, when we're upset, when we're dealing with some form of rejection, it's like our, our resources, our potential for response are just narrowed. And it's like all, there's this minimal things that we can do. All the things that we could do when we're healthy, when we're not feeling down, when we're not feeling downcast or, or angry or rejected, those kind of disappear and all of a sudden we have these minimal responses. So how can I take these emotions I'm feeling and channel them into something generative? That's really the question that we got to be asking. But Cain didn't ask that question. God gave him the out. He gave him the warning. But what happens next is like a scene from The Godfather. Let's go for a drive. You and me. Takes him out into the field, and he kills his brother. Just like that. God's like, sin is crouching at your door. It wants you. You've got to fight against it. Cain ignores the advice, and he kills his brother. John Updike, the novelist, writes, some things are hidden in health, but revealed in 104-degree fever. The anger that kind of burns up in Cain reveals something that I think is probably the, the cue to why his offering wasn't accepted, at least in my opinion. I, I wonder if the problem with Cain's offering was that he thought it would be better than Abel's. There was obviously some kind of competition taking place there. Like God doesn't accept his and Cain just lashes out in anger. So I wonder if when he was bringing his offering, it wasn't just to honor God, but if it was trying to be better than his brother. We know what that's like, whether we're trying to impress someone in our peer group or a member of our family or someone in our workplace. We know what it's like to do something with mixed motives, and I wonder if Cain had mixed motives here and God called him on it. This is a classic case of sibling rivalry. In fact, it's actually the original sibling rivalry. Of course, they were the first siblings, so getting at each other because they're siblings. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, so much attitude. Like even after he commits this murder, he's still got a chip on his shoulder. I think Cain was well of the answer to that question. He knew the answer. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. I am responsible. I read this line from Elizabeth Barrett Browning this week. I think uh, she writes this, where we disavow being keeper to our brother, we're his cane. If we think we don't have to care for our brother, then we become our brother's murderer. We have to accept this. We have to embrace this idea that, like, we are all cut from the same clay, right? But too often, when we feel that someone has wronged us, we move away from them instead of making the far healthier choice and moving toward them. So it goes back to this comment, this comment earlier about our common origins. Samir Samanovich writes, our common origin precedes and therefore supersedes all other identities. As in a family, 
no matter how difficult it can be to live together, and no matter how dysfunctional the relationship can be, nothing can really separate us from each other. They are, in fact, us. Now, he's writing about humanity as a whole. We can pretend because we're at odds with someone or because someone's different than us or, or because they live somewhere else that, that we're just completely con- disconnected from one another, but the fact is, the truth is, the reality is, they are, in fact, us. And if we realize that, it changes the way we deal with conflict. I remember when Melissa and I were sitting in a, the office of a pastor before we were married doing our marriage preparation, and we were sitting there, and he was talking to us about conflict. And uh, it's one of the things that has always stood out to us because it was a great illustration. He said, like, when, you, when a husband and wife are in conflict, and this can apply to any relationship. This can apply to sibling relationship, coworker relationship, extended family, neighbor. It doesn't really matter. But he said, when you're having conflict, he said, there are a couple of different ways you can think about it. He said, imagine it like, like it's a game you're playing, like there's a, a volleyball net in between you. He said, like, some people approach conflict like you play volleyball with bricks. And so it's like, you're like, all right, my turn. And you like throw a brick over the net and try to hit your partner. And then they duck out of the way and they're like, oh yeah? And they pick up a brick and they throw it because you're trying to hurt each other and you're trying to win this thing. And he said, but it, think of it more like a rally. Like the goal in this volleyball match is to get, go back and forth, is to hit a ball back and forth. Okay, my turn. And you're hitting this ball and it's going back and forth and you're trying to understand one another and learn from one another and play the game together instead of against one another. What if instead of using conflict as an opportunity to compete with one another or against one another, we saw it as an opportunity to learn and to grow? I think that's what God was inviting Cain into. There's a chance here for you to learn something about yourself and maybe even something about your brother. The problem wasn't Abel. Abel hadn't done anything wrong. The problem was Cain himself, and so was the solution. When we're in conflict with people, we could write a long list of what the other person's done wrong about what the other person needs to fix, about all of their offenses. But that doesn't get us anywhere. If we start with ourselves and think, what can I bring to the situation? What can I do about this? Then we can work on healing that relationship and working through this conflict. But Cain chose to sever the relationship once and for all. And so there was no turning back for him. And as a result, he's banished to become a restless wanderer. And our reading ends with this ominous verse, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In many ways, we're all living in the land east of Eden. Every one of us will stumble and fall and get angry and who knows what else. We may not kill each other out in the field, but if we're not careful, we'll get as close as we can to doing that. Fortunately for us, unlike Cain, In almost every circumstance of our lives, there is still an opportunity to turn back, whether we have been wronged or have done wrong. And if you have done wrong or have been wronged, you know exactly what that relationship is this morning. You know exactly what those circumstances are. And the good news is that it's not too late to turn back. The good news is that you can reconcile that relationship. In another garden, at another point in history, Someone else who knew that he was about to be betrayed and undergo untold suffering had a life-altering choice to make. As Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he was about to be turned over, he got down and prayed. And his closest companions, they couldn't even stay awake to pray with him. He went back and found them sleeping. And then 
Matthew 26, 42 says that he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. See, Jesus was willing to walk a different path that would lead to reconciliation for all of us, not just for the people who put him on that cross, but for every single one of us. And in a sense, he redeems the story of Cain and Abel. He had this opportunity. He spoke to his father. He received that counsel, and he went on down that path. He was willing to do whatever it took for the sake of reconciliation. And I want to encourage us to do that. We're going to spend a month talking about conflict. There's going to be some heavy stuff, no doubt. There's going to be some challenges in these stories for sure. But the opportunity is in front of us. And what are we going to do with it? I invite you to just take us to stand for a moment as we close in prayer. We're going to have some time to talk about this. As we do each week, if you're new here, you're just visiting, uh, we take the last half hour of our time together in the morning and we gather in the gym around tables. I've written some questions to probe a little deeper into what I've talked about so far. But I want us to remember that regardless of what we've done wrong or who's wronged us, regardless of what kind of enmity we feel with people or in certain circumstances in our lives, that we still have an opportunity to move forward in healthy ways. And we don't have to do it on our own. So I'd like to read a verse from the same chapter of Hebrews that reminds us that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God, I give thanks for these words, a reminder that when we face difficulty and challenge and conflict in our relationships and in our lives, that we don't have to go at it on our own. We certainly don't have to respond with violence, whether it's physical or emotional or verbal violence, whatever it is. We don't, certainly don't have to respond that way. But God, I want us to learn to take these words as our own story, to read the story as our own, that you call out to each one of us. You, you want us to stay connected with you in relationship with you. So like Jesus, we can pray, your will be done in this situation. So my prayer is that as we gather around tables, you would inspire our conversation. And as we go about through the week, that whatever it is that's crossed our mind about relationships that might need mending, about conflict that might need to be faced, I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength by your Holy Spirit to walk that path. And we give thanks with the reminder that you are with us in all things. In Christ's name, amen.